Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Beats. I am your host, Kelly Kennedy, and I am very fortunate to be able to share my tribe as I travel across the globe and meet incredible scientists and doctors and all sorts of practitioners and continue to expand that tribe to help engage and encourage and empower you to learn how your body really works. Because what we know from our heart to yours is that you have all the innate wisdom inside you to heal and that our job is naturally oriented therapists, medically enlightened doctors and specialists available here at Not Meds Global. The Beats podcast is about helping you understand that you have that power inside and what you need to do to help engage it, to constantly upregulate your ecosystem. Thank you so much for being part of our community. If this resonates with you, please go ahead and share this episode. We are always open to your comments and your questions as always. And welcome back to this week's episode of The Beats. Welcome back to The Beats with Kelly Kennedy. And today I have one of my esteemed colleagues, favorite guests of all times, Dr. James O'Dell. And those of you who have been listening to this podcast know very much his resume is extensive. His knowledge is even bigger than his resume. And he's always here to give us cutting edge information. He is a research king, as you can see behind him, if you're watching this on video. He's got structuring water behind him, live blood analysis, and he's doing all sorts of things always to dive deep into how the body really works. So today, Dr. Odell, thank you so much for joining us again. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. And so we are going to be talking about a very hot topic today, which is the gene therapy slash COVID shots that are being administered and what the reality of that is. And because it is experimental and research, we are learning new things about it all the time. I know in our clinic, we're seeing um, after shots that there's been a lot of lymphatic stagnancy. We've seen evidence of that as well in research as well. But we're going to be talking about a very, uh, a very in-depth program into that. So I'm going to let Dr. Odell lead. And what I'm going to do, like I've been doing on the last few episodes, is kind of act like the dumb, not dumb, the uninformed um, uh, client to ask the questions that everybody has. So well, thank, thank you, Kelly. I'd, I'd like to get started by um, putting out this idea that with any kind of medical intervention, we always ask three questions with this. Uh, now this could be surgery or a medicine you may take or, or even uh, a natural approach. So we, we consider this, is it necessary first? The second consideration is, is it safe? And the third consideration is, is it effective? And so these three things we want to discuss in relationship to the vaccines. Is it necessary? Is it safe? Is it effective? And um, so I'd like to start with, is it necessary? And as you know, um, they now have a lot of information on the demographics and very and, uh, detailed statistics of different age groups that have, uh, that survived the, if they get infected with the, the SARS-CoV-2 uh, virus and of all different age groups. The, the first age group is the, the zero to 19 age group. And of course they have a survival rate that's very, very high, 99.997. Now that's um, quite a survival rate. Now, of course they may get sick, but just like any flu or cold, usually it passes within a few weeks time. Uh, and then you de develop uh, permanent antibodies that will last your life long. So the second group is the age 20 to 49 group, and that's a 99.98% survival rate. Then we have the 50 to 69, and that's a 99.5% survival rate. So as you can see, as the number, as the ages go up, the, it goes down just a fraction of a point. Uh, at the 70 plus age group, it's 94.6. Now, um, this is about the age in which a lot of people 
their immunity is starting to dwindle, and they also have different comorbidities, such as heart disease, lung disease. They may have liver impairment, other kinds of, of functional impairments, um, and actually be taking a whole host of other kinds of medicines. So it's expected that that age group would have more problems. And, and it's just always been the way it is, is that the elderly, when they get influenza, are always the most predisposed to it and have the most problems with it. Uh, so coronavirus is no different. Here they say with the flu uh, that 80% of flu is usually influenza, the other 20% are coronaviruses. So coronaviruses have been with us since the beginning of time. Uh, we, most of us have been exposed to coronaviruses and probably have developed uh, antibodies to it, some of us more than others. Now, so that's the idea first, is, is it necessary? Well, given that survival rate and the fact that also we have early protocols that can treat it. With the, and if you treat it early, then this will keep you from going into the hospital. So you have a time period from when you catch it and start developing a symptom of about uh, one to two weeks before it really becomes, if it progresses, it becomes severe, it becomes an inflammatory type of problem in the body. Uh, and starts to inflame the lung or whatever, if, if it does progress. As I say, most people recover without going through that inflammatory process. However, there are early treatment protocols. And unfortunately, the CDC and other um, types of government agencies, medical agencies, uh, even independent agencies, have not really given doctors a early treatment protocol that they can use. And so many doctors, independent doctors have come up with their own. Uh, like you have the Zelenko protocol, uh, Valdemir Zelenko, who's, uh, I highly encourage people to watch all of his podcasts. He's a brilliant doctor, has treated over 6,000 coronavirus patients and with success, uh, the, and meaning success that they have successfully survived and gone on to live a normal life. Um, and he uses a protocol that incorporates um, different types of things, mainly um, hydroxychloroquine and, and zinc and, and different types of uh, what they call iodophores of zinc, which are, they help the zinc get into the cell. So, but his protocol uh, has been very successful. Now, many other doctors uh, throughout the United States and elsewhere have also come up with other, other types of, of early interventions that keep people from going into the hospital. So people shouldn't wait. They just shouldn't just like wait around until they get like really, really sick and then go into the hospital. And then it's at a bad point. Um, so early intervention, just like any disease really, you know, we're always treating early or trying to prevent it in some way um, is very, very important. And that can, can help the situation more than we know. So is it necessary uh, to have a vaccine? Well, if the survival rate is that good, and if there's early interventions that are successful, even if you do get it, then chances are maybe the vaccine isn't so necessary for everyone, okay? But particularly for younger people, if you're looking at it that way, we're gonna give this the benefit of the doubt. And certainly for younger people, under uh, people uh, younger than 50. Uh, for older people, we have a question about it because the vaccines, um, you know, have some side effects. And so that's when we get into the safety issue. Is it safe? Now, uh, there are different reporting systems. Europe has its reporting system and the United States has its reporting system of vaccine adverse events. And uh, the VIRS, the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, uh, is a, a reporting system of the CDC, uh, has since December, from December the 14th, 2020 to August the 13th, 2021, just a, about a week or so ago, um, I mean, excuse me, about a, a month or so ago, yeah. uh, has reported 13,000 deaths um, have been reported as an adverse event from 
the vaccine and 595,000 total adverse events. Now that's almost 600,000 total adverse events. Uh, Europe is, is ahead of that in, in, in their reporting. Now we have to consider beers um, may not be accurate. Those numbers may not be accurate. They are actually underreported and underrecorded. Uh, so what does that mean? That means that uh, there was a Harvard study done some time ago that uh, showed that the VIRS probably only uh, 1% was reported of the adverse events of vaccines in general was reported to VIRS. So we could estimate that it is definitely underreported. Uh, many people, uh, they get vaccinated and they they have an adverse event and they just don't know how to report it or they uh, they got the vaccine at, at uh, like Walgreen or some other place that and they and though they don't report it so it just goes underreported. And, the, and my understanding uh, if you will from the reporting perspective is one of the the obstacles in reporting is, and, and with all medicine, it's about documentation, of course, that you have to know exactly the date of the vaccine, the lot number of the vaccine, and that's not always readily information, particularly if you're going to one of these, you know, come in and get your free flu shots, they're not necessarily recording all that in a detailed way necessarily, and that you might also not that adverse effect might not happen the minute it occurs. It might be three weeks, three months down the road, and it might not be that you link it back to the vaccine, which could also represent a huge portion of those un, um, unreported things at very Exactly, so we have the under-reporting, we also have the under-recording. And so if, if, just as you said, if you don't have the lot number, if you don't have all of the details that has happened, they won't record it. They won't take the case and, and put it into their database. Uh, there's been a question about their database. Uh, is it accurate? Uh, is, are they actually coming up? Uh, are they actually reporting? Are they reporting what has been reported to them? And so we could only on good faith assume that they're honest, that the CDC is honest, even though they're in the vaccine business. Uh, and that would um, be the case there that uh, hopefully um, they are, but uh, many people feel that this is a problem, a bigger, in other words, a bigger problem than what is being uh, reported. Now, a lot of this never even gets into mainstream media. You know, you have to go into other sites in order to find this information, but it grows every week um, by as many as 700 deaths or more. Are, are reported every week. Now, again, from that is, the shot, the, the deaths are from the shot. Just so the from, yes, th this is an adverse event that has been, uh, that has happened. A lot of it is within a few hours of the shot. Some of it is within a day or two. Some of it is within a week, usually not more than that, but that's what, um, what's being reported. So is it safe? Well, you know, in view of this, and in view of, of what's going on in Europe and around the world, it seems like that, no, it's not safe for everyone, that's for sure, and that um, we just don't know the long-term safety of this either, because there hasn't been any long-term studies done. Uh, so in a minute, I'll get into the pathology of that, and, and I'll kind of talk a little bit about the long-term, uh, potential long-term effects of it. But lastly, we go into, well, is it effective? Okay, now effective means that it should prevent transmission. It should prevent a person from becoming infected. Uh, that's what normally vaccines do. But here, neither of those things are true, that it, it doesn't prevent you from catching it. It doesn't prevent you from transmitting it. What the CDC says is that it may uh, help to mitigate the symptoms. In other words, it may lessen the symptoms so that you don't have to uh, be hospitalized. However, we know this is not exactly true because we hear a lot about these breakthrough situations. Um, Israel is probably one of the most vaccinated countries in the world. So there have been uh, kind of a model to us to, to see 
how effective this vaccine is. That we now know that Israel is reporting 60% of their hospitalizations are among the vaccinated. So for COVID, for yeah. SARS 2 COVID, exactly. so they're, they're getting the vaccination and yet they're still ending up hospitalized with COVID. Yes. So they get the vaccine and then they become hospitalized with COVID. So 60%, that's more than half. Yeah. So, you know, you may hear in the media that it's only the unvaccinated. No, that's not true at all. And of course, there's many doctors around the United States that are also reporting the same thing. They're saying that the hospitals are full of vaccinated people. <clears throat> so is it effective? No, it doesn't appear to be effective. And that's why they're talking about a booster, right? And in Israel are saying, well, let's let's give them a booster. So it's, you know, there's a, a, a theme in medicine that if you keep trying the same thing and uh, with and expect and it fails and you expect different results, maybe that's insanity. And so this is kind of insanity. You're you keep trying to vaccinate people, but it doesn't seem to work. It doesn't spread the help with the, the uh, contagiousness of it, and it doesn't help you from becoming infected with it. Uh, so the question, and it has this safety issue with it, and is it really necessary? So when you consider all of these things together, the necessity of it, the safety of it, the efficacy of it, it, it really puts it into question, right? So, uh, or at least it should put it into question in, in people's minds that you want to think a little bit more deeply on it. Um, but please don't take my word for any of this. I want people to do their own due diligent research into it. And I think it's, it's very sad when people don't even know what they're being injected with. And they, they haven't really understood the, um, the consequences of, of the potential consequences of it. So as far as the informed consent about it, they've never really been explained that this, what this vaccine is to do or isn't to do. And so they're very ignorant about it and they just blindly are led into this thinking this is, uh, it, and they trust, you know, they're, they're trusting our government and, our, and powers that be to, to make the decisions for them. And that may not turn out very well is the, is the way it's, it's looking, okay? So it's important anytime you choose to do something like put a biological medicine, particularly an experimental one that's never been used before into your body to have a better understanding of it and possibly to pause and to do your research. It's not a 911 situation. You don't have to run out and get it. You have time to do your research and, and then to make an informed decision about whether this is right for you or not. And so, as I say, don't take my word for it. Please do your own due diligence research and, and look into this. If you've already had a vaccine, <clears throat> then we'll be talking about that, what you can do possibly to mitigate any side effects that you may experience down the road. So, um, well, let's, let's talk a little bit of, uh, you go ahead, Tekel, yeah. if you want to ask me something. So what I wanted to just talk about the immune system for a minute, right? Because there's different types of immunity. Yes. And at some point, Dr. Odell and I are going to be doing a mini class on immunity. We just have not had a chance to schedule that with all the things that I have going on. But he has agreed to help me with that class to help educate people about immunity. But just as a really quick understanding, we really have three types of immunity. We have innate immunity. We have acquired immunity, and then we have passive immunity, right? And acquired immunity is what you were talking about in regards to the young kids that are getting it. They develop the lifelong antibodies, regardless of the variant, Dr. Odell. Is that true? Yes, regardless of the variant. Variant, uh, like the Delta variant, is 99.7% uh, the same genetic sequence as the original. And basically, it's the same as the original. Um, but they come out with these the scare tactics. So, oh God, it's a new variant and it's more contagious and virulent and blah, blah, blah. Um, that SARS-1 is about 80% the same as SARS-2. And we know that SARS-1, the people that developed antibodies during SARS-1, those antibodies are effective for SARS-2. Oh, interesting. Okay? 
And so if it's effective at 80%, then it's certainly effective at 99.7%, all right? So you know, it's, it's not and, hard to do the math. And the passive immunity or vaccinations, immunizations is, you know, being looking outside the body and, and getting something to create this immunity, which I would love to delve into that and whether or not does it actually affect effectively create this passive immunity. And I think from previous podcasts, episode 42, um, the only one that I can quote all the time is where we discuss, you know, the gene therapy and what it does and the prions and the spike proteins and so forth. And the, the guesstimation of what the, everything has to go right in the body for it to have the outcome that they are postulating that this will have. So everything has to go exactly perfect for it to have this passive immunity, but yet what we're finding is that even though they're getting this shot, supposedly with a passive immunity, which is supposed to make them not transmit it, it still is transmittable, and they're supposed to not be able to get it, but they are still getting it, just to confirm that everybody understands that what we're talking about. Yes, you know, for a vaccine to work, it must produce a, a neutralizing antibody, and that's very specific antibody for that for that specific virus, but it neutralizes it. And so, but it's never certain that a vaccine will produce neutralizing antibodies. A lot of times they don't, they produce non-neutralizing antibodies. And so that means it, it won't help. It won't confer any kind of, of uh, immunity. Uh, certainly those uh, types of antibodies can can uh, fade out over time, so to speak, and that's why they get boosters. So as you know, like uh, we get childhood disease that we develop antibodies for our whole life. But if you're getting vaccinated for measles, mumps, things like this, you have to get boosters in order to boost those antibodies because not all of them are neutralizing and you're trying to develop those neutralizing antibodies. And so, um, that's basically it. You're, you're looking at, uh, there's two types. They're from natural infection. The antibodies are, are stronger <clears throat> and they're more neutralizing. From a vaccine, a lot of times it, they, it misses and it, it doesn't produce that neutralizing antibody. Well, and this so is a question that I, a, sorry. A little bit more when we talk about antibody dependent enhancement. Okay. Uh, yeah, but okay. that's, yeah, just to, to keep in mind that the vaccine doesn't always produce uh, the antibodies that you're, you're intending, that you want, uh, not like the, the actual infection. So uh, that's why people with, um, <clears throat> with the natural immunity uh, or the coronavirus are exponentially more protected than with the vaccine. And this so is- with the acquired immunity, essentially that we want to get it. You know, this is the concept that why do I want Silas to get chicken pox? So he acquires an immunity to the varicella um, um, virus that is the contributor as well as Epstein-Barr virus to getting chicken pox and shingles later in his life. If I can get him chicken pox now, he'll get lifelong antibodies to that virus. And as similar as they are along the shingles and the mononucleosis and, um, you know, so scarlet fever, all those things that it's on that same line, if you will, does that? Yes, exactly. Um, like with my daughter, uh, when she went off to college, I did some titers on her and I did, uh, basically most of the childhood uh, types of illnesses. And I found that she had these neutralizing antibodies that, that her titers were high. And, but she never, uh, as far as I know, I mean, really she never came out with any of the, the um, diseases. Yes, any of the childhood diseases it really didn't manifest. Neither was she vaccinated for them. So uh, a, a tighter, what that means is, what yeah. that means is that you don't necessarily have to manifest the disease in order to build an antibodies. A lot of us build antibodies kind of behind the scenes, if you will, where we're not manifesting a, a symptomology, uh, an overt symptomology like breakout and 
in a, in a cough or a sore throat or whatever it may be, that we might just have a very mild uh, kind of feel weird. And, and But at the same time, uh, underneath it all, our body is producing these neutralizing antibodies. So, uh, and that's the way it is certainly with children. Uh, um, children seem to, I mean, they're exposed to viruses and bacteria and all kinds of pathogens all the time. We all are. And they're always producing uh, neutralizing antibodies to these, you know, ever since the beginning. Um, <clears throat> so it's just important to understand that, that the vaccines don't confer lifelong immunity. And that's why we get booster shots. And, and that's what they're after. You know, they're after uh, the people to get more boosters, more boosters, and you know, they, they have them all kind of lined up. Well, of course, this is an industry. We have to understand this is an industry and that they make money uh, off of what they do. And it's not always for the benefit of mankind uh, here. So um, it doesn't appear to be working so well. Um, it, and that's why a lot of people say it's really not a vaccine that it doesn't fit the criteria of a vaccine and protecting you and also uh, protecting others. So you could, it only mitigates the symptoms if, if at best, and that apparently it doesn't do that for everyone. So a lot of people still end up in the hospital. So, okay. Whew. Everybody take a breath. <laughs> Okay, well, what I'd like to talk good, about- really good, deep information. What are we gonna talk about next, Dr. Yeah, what, what I'd like to go into is the pathophysiology of the vaccines, kind of what some doctors are coming up with and what we're, we're starting to understand and know. And much of that comes from actually uh, the pathophysiology of coronavirus, right? So we know now when people get sick, very sick, exactly what happens to them. And it's the same thing with the vaccines because the vaccines mimic the disease. So within, a, within the messenger RNA, Pfizer and Moderna shot, there is around 40 trillion messenger RNA molecules that are injected, 40 trillion. And these messenger RNA molecules enter into your deltoid muscle and about 25% of them reside there. The other 75% enter into the circulatory system, enter into the lymphatics as well as the uh, vascular system of the body. <clears throat> now, from there, they migrate to your organs, glands, and tissues, but through your vascular system, they attach themselves to the endothelium of the vessel. Uh, this is the inner lining of the vessel because that's where the ACE2 receptors are. There's a lot of ACE2 receptors in the endothelium, so they attach themselves there, and that's what they've been trained to do. So these messenger RNA molecules attach themselves into the inner lining of the blood vessels all the way down to the capillaries. Now, if we think about what a capillary is, a capillary is only two cells thick as far as the wall. It's a very, very thin vessel and it's a very small vessel. And that's where, that's the end of the line. That's where uh, red cells and nutrients are released to the tissues and uh, carbon dioxide is taken up. So that vessel has to be smooth. That endothelium, uh, that lining of the vessel has to be smooth to allow uh, red cells to go single file through that vessel. Now, what happens is the messenger RNA lodges there and then it does what it's programmed to do. It produces spike proteins. Spike proteins are spiky. And what they do is they create a roughness to that vessel wall. So along comes platelets and platelets view that as an injury and the platelets adhere to the vessel wall there and create a microclot. And so the potential of creating microclots throughout your whole body is great. And in other words, that is a, uh, a, one of the pathophysiological problems is clotting. And that's what a lot of people come up with, you know, in the very beginning 
is their their reaction has to do with with um, vascular problems in their brain, like with strokes, uh, in their eyes, in their sensory nerves, in their uh, heart and lungs, and over time, that this magnifies. And what can happen is that the the capillaries within the lungs become occluded with this clotting and can't deliver the uh, the blood to the uh, into the alveolus of the lungs. This is where the exchange of oxygen happens. So the pressure in the lungs increases and you get a, a pulmonary artery hypertension and that puts a strain on the right side of the heart. And it can lead to right side heart failure. Maybe not like right away, but certainly down the road. Now, if a person already has existing heart disease uh, or if they uh, have existing lung disease, then it could happen sooner than later. But as you've heard, uh, many young people have developed myocarditis. And uh, this is an inflammation within their, the pericardium and the, the myocardium of the of the heart, and they end up having a damaged heart. Uh, now, some organs regenerate, like the, the liver and the kidneys have, have regenerative properties, but the heart does not, and neither does the lung or the brain. And so the, the, the damage that's done there from these microclots is permanent, and it's lifelong. And it could lead to other types of degenerative diseases and death. So the microclotting issue is a concern, let's, a huge let, concern. Let's just, I want to unpack that a little bit because I'm trying to come up with an analogy for people to understand that who aren't heavy science brained. So like add to my analogy, if you will, and tell me where I'm wrong. So I'm, the capillaries are like roadways. Okay, that and they're they're like toll booths that have to open up and they've got to be smooth because my car can just fit through it. But if they've got these spikes that are coming out on either side of the toll booth, when my car goes through it, it gets stuck, if you will. Okay. Yes. I don't really have a good analogy for the platelet, but then uh, the cop comes along. He's the platelet and he's like, hey, there's a problem over here and I'm going to just stay right here until I figure out the problem. He's the platelet. Okay. So the, the, the now that car wreck is what it is. It's, it's a, a car wreck and it creates traffic jam. It's, and then it, the cars can't move through. So it just and it's lifelong. It just stays there. And yes. now the traffic behind it can't move. And if this is happening at your alveoli, which are you, you like think about a tree and the branches of the tree, they're like the outside of the branches that are allowing the oxygen to exchange with the rest of the body and take the dirty blood, if you will, and bring in the clean blood. I'm sorry, air, bring in the, take out the dirty air, bring in the clean air, and then circulate it through a whole, the whole body. But how can it circulate if there's traffic jams at all the toll booths? Yes, that I think sense? that's, yeah, that's, that's good. Uh, so essentially, he's really smart. He's really smart, and I can somewhat follow along with Dr. Odell. But I just wanted to bring that down to a level where people could begin to understand that, and not get too lost in what he's saying. That, but but really go back and listen to that now that you understand that analogy, and perhaps you'll understand that even deeper to realize that this is creating a permanent damage to the endothelial cells that are lining every blood vessel in your body that should be smooth. And when they're sharp and spiky, they create this traffic jam, which stops blood flowing and air circulation. And therefore you're going to have more damaging long-term effects like strokes and mitocarditis and heart failures that are going to continue to happen faster because you've set up all these traffic jams within this messenger RNA situation. Exactly. And, and that's what they're programmed to do. The other thing is we don't know how long messenger RNA creates spike proteins. There's really not a lot of information on it. So is this forever? And are people going to be creating these spiky proteins forever? Uh, the whole idea in creating a spike protein would be to ideally to create a neutralizing antibody to the spike protein. But 
the, uh, the damaging effects initially uh, for many people uh, have been have been terrible. And over time, it could be even worse. So there are doctors that understand this and they're doing certain testing to determine if they do have micro, if a person does have microclots developing. One test is called a D-dimer. And this is a test that's often used for like strokes and, and uh, various types of deep vein thrombosis and pulmonary embolises. Uh, in other words, conditions in which there's abnormal clotting uh, or a, a, a clot in the body. And uh, it gives the information about the presence of a clot. But if you have lots and lots of clots throughout your body, then the D-dimer will be high. Okay. And there's a, a, a doctor in Canada that's been doing D-dimer testing on vaccinated patients and finding that over 60% have high D-dimers. So the idea that microclots are a rare circumstance is not true. That what we're finding is that it's actually a pretty common circumstance. And depending on your health and your vascularity, you, you uh, could maybe survive this, but a lot of people don't. And, and they end up with uh, severe types of diseases and death. And this would make sense to me from the lymphatic world, what I'm seeing in the clogged lymph, that that's backing up because the cardiovascular system and the lymph are so working hand in hand. And when, you know, these spike proteins are creating these microclots, then we're getting stagnicity in the lymph. And I'm seeing people with edemas that haven't had edemas before. I'm seeing like lumpy, um, you know, things, particularly in the axillary of the deltoid in which they had the shot on that same side. Exactly. So that's the first thing that could happen. We, we're thinking of, of uh, adverse events in three stages, okay? Okay. Adverse events in three stages. The first stage would be the microclots and damage to the organs as a result of the microclots. This is anywhere from the time of the shot and some people immediately go into seizures. I'm sure you've seen pictures of that on television. Um, whereas, or up into about three months. So this is a time period in which microclots could develop, okay? Now it doesn't mean they'll stop there, but that's one time period. Another time period is between after three months to maybe about two or three years. And what potentially could happen there is what's called antibody-dependent enhancement or pathogenic priming or disease enhancement. It's given different names. And it's really been a thorn in the side of vaccine makers for a very long time. Um, part of it is that when making antibodies, not all of the antibodies that the vaccine makes are neutralizing antibodies. And the antibodies may bind to the virus in such a way that it actually helps the virus enter into the cells more easily. So it assists the virus instead of neutralizing it, all right? So it enhances it. And um, this can cause a person to become more severely infected. And this is what happened in the early days of testing coronavirus vaccines back in 2002 through 2005. They did, uh, after the SARS-1, they tried to develop vaccines for coronaviruses. And there was many attempts, and of course they always do animal studies first. Right. Um, and they did studies with ferrets, with rabbits, with mice, with rats, uh, most of the animals that you, um, they usually do studies with. And they found that in almost all cases, there was antibody dependent enhancement. So what that means is when they vaccinated the animal and then they re-exposed the animal to the virus, that instead of protecting, uh, the, instead of the vaccine protecting that animal, it allowed entry of the virus into the animal. It, in, it over enhanced the immunity causing a cytokine storm. This means inflammatory chemicals or cytokines, a type of, of inflammatory chemical. And that overwhelmed the system in, in the uh, certain animals that caused autoimmune hepatitis. 
and other animals that causes infiltrates in, in the lungs. So it created a systemic effect of inflammatory effect that uh, it should have protected against that virus, but instead it allowed entry of that virus into the body to create uh, a, an inflammatory response that was over an, an over response. And so they call it, so often call it disease enhancement or pathogenic priming. You primed the body for a pathogen. You prepared the body for this pathogen. So ADE, they call it, or antibody-dependent enhancement, is a real concern because it happened with the animals and with the SARS-1, you know, back when, and they really didn't um, exclude it from the trials this time. And a lot of times it doesn't happen right away. It may not happen for several months until you're re-exposed to the, uh, a specific pathogen and then your body overreacts. So instead of giving the body the, instead of the vaccine creating an antibody, essentially the vaccine has an opposite effect where it makes the virus enter the cell which causes the body to have an overstimulated immune response, creating these chemicals called cytokines, which sets the body up for systemic, a whole, a whole body inflammation, which if you don't know anything about health, you know inflammation is bad. <laughs> you, you can know nothing about holistic bioregulatory medicine, and you know inflammation is not what we want. We want to reduce inflammation. So. The, and then that inflammation advances because now the train is different. So it advances the disease of whatever was there before, or perhaps just this disease, but it, it creates a more extreme response. And therefore the person gets even sicker than they would have had they not had the vaccine. Is that what you're saying, that's, Dr. That's, that's correct. The vaccine primed them to, to become worse. And um, later on, after they're exposed, instead of really neutralizing it, it created some binding type of antibodies that allowed entry of the virus into the body, creating an over-response in the immunity, creating inflammation. And that can attack different organs. I mean, it could, it could attack the lungs. It could attack the liver um, or other organs. What they say is that a lot of it could potentially attack the uterus and the ovaries and cause infertility. So, you know, there is a lot of information coming out about that. Um, and that's a scary thought too, that these, these vaccines may cause sterility in not just females, but males too. So uh, if that's the case, then we're really in for a, uh, a shock of humanity because, you know, think about all the people that are being vaccinated. And, and if that impairs their ability to have children, uh, well, then you're going to see a huge depopulation issue. Now, I'm not going to go into that, but that's that certainly uh, well, could, be, could be the case. I've had a lot of clients, and I know my colleagues as well. I'm sure you have as well. We haven't discussed this primarily, but we've had a lot of clients with either they stopped getting their period or they're getting it too much, and myself included. I am of the menopausal age, but I do not test as though I'm menopausal. However, my cycle has been anywhere from 12 days to 52 days over the course of the last year and a half. And it's been, when I travel more, it, it, it changes and it can change anywhere from I don't get it to I get it too early. And I see the same with clients. And, you know, honest, honestly, at this point in my life, not that I want to acquire, um, infertility in this way, I'd be okay with a little infertility at 47 years old. I don't necessarily want to have a baby right now. Um, but that being said, I would like that to just happen naturally and not because of exposures to, you know, mRNA and spike proteins being exposed to my body, causing me to have spike proteins perhaps in my uterus that's causing because I think exactly the uterus and ovaries probably are not regenerative as well, like the liver, I mean, like the lung and the brain, right? I don't know that mm -hmm. to be the heart, the lung, and the brain are not regenerative, whereas the liver is, the intestines are. What are your concepts? Well, yeah, generally, you know, your endocrine system is very uh, fragile too. Right. And, you know, a lot of times those, those cells, if they're damaged, can, cannot repair themselves either. But uh, a, 
if you look at veers in some of the um, adverse events, many of them are miscarriages. <laughs> so we have that as a, as a problem already, already. And of course, these vaccines, none of them are tested on pregnant women, uh, nor are they tested on lactating women. We don't know um, if, you know, are the spike proteins passed on through the milk or not? Um, or the placenta. They, or yeah, placenta. Wait, th there's just a lot of unknowns here because we're, you know, in a learning curve here. Um, this hasn't been given time like any vaccine, like, uh, it's because it's really not a vaccine, but they haven't been given time enough to really explore all of these issues, which usually can take anywhere from six to eight years, uh, and, and particularly with long-term effects. And that's what I'd like to talk lastly about. And uh, so we have the first, uh, the first set of it is a lot of the vascular problems with clotting, with microclots, strokes, uh, myocardial problems. Um, and then we have the later, the ADE, problem with immune enhancement causing cytokine storm. We don't know over the years if this is going to cause autoimmune problems, if it's going to cause cancers. We just don't know. And But there is some speculation that it certainly could. So that, again, it, it puts a pause on it like, well, shouldn't we really know a long term, at least over a few years time? before we jump into you know, injecting ourselves with something like this. So I know there's probably listeners out there that have already taken the vaccine and are, they may be concerned. You know, they may go, well, you know, what, what do I do? But what I can tell you is uh, just like with anything, the first thing is that you have to consider uh, all, of the th all of this information yourself and do your own research. Do you really wanna do another booster, all right? And um, you could stop the process now and not, not do another booster. <clears throat> and um, because it's going to be booster after booster, I could promise you. Yeah. And that uh, with the swine flu, they stopped in uh, dead in their tracks giving swine flu vaccines after about 40 people died and started, you know, developing Ghislaine Bray. So oh. here we have close to worldwide reported maybe over 40,000 people have died <clears throat> and you know a thousand times that many and yet they haven't stopped all right they're they're you know full on and uh, pushing for 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 boosters <clears throat> now i know in many countries they've also you know are mandating it too and that's you know that that gets into more political and medical freedoms uh, issues you know, here I'm just talking about the, the, the pathophysiology of the vaccines and, you know, things to consider, the safety, efficacy, all these things to consider without going into the, you know, medical freedom issues, uh, which I think are very important as well. Um, you know, our body is, is our body. And um, so. Um, so that, if they're vaccinated already, already, they should really consider or not to perhaps not do the back to not do the booster. What else can they do if they've been? Yes, already you know, you treat your body like um, you want to enhance your immunity in, in some ways, so that you don't become infected and create and develop an antibody dependent enhancement. <clears throat> um, so we things that are known to be helpful are zinc mm -hmm. and. Uh, zinc's unlike iron. Uh, iron, we have storages of iron, and but zinc we don't. You know, is zinc it should be a daily affair. So are you taking zinc? Uh, and with the Zelenko protocol, advocates zinc, and he he goes way up there. You know, like 240 milligrams of zinc. Um, but yeah, it's a lot. And uh, as you know, that zinc high doses of zinc over a long period of time, you could develop a certain degree of toxicity. It could displace copper and have other kinds of, of issues with it. But generally safe in, in the range of 25 to 50 milligrams a day, uh, generally safe. And <clears throat> so for most adults, now that I think the uh, 
uh, RDAs are in between like 11 and 17, something like that. But um, certainly people could take zinc and there's many forms of it out there. Uh, I know that it's hard to find it on the shelves anymore because people have gotten the word that you know zinc is, is important. Uh, we think zinc and um, when, with this illness. So um, there's also what they call ionophores of zinc. And these, uh, because zinc has trouble getting through the membranes of the cells, the membranes made up of fats. And so these are little carrier molecules that help to carry zinc into the cell. Uh, one of them is quercetin. And so quercetin is a flavonoid. There's also flavonoids in green tea. So, you know, drinking green tea is uh, another uh, advantage of that is to getting these flavonoids that help you utilize zinc better. Um, beyond that, we also know that people that are deficient in zinc are the ones that seem to be more predisposed to getting infected and having also uh, a worse time of it. And it's the same thing with vitamin D. Uh, D3 is very important. Uh, and should be used in, in a, a preventative protocol or even a therapeutic protocol that uh, a lot of uh, research has come out that people that are deficient in zinc are the ones that are hospitalized. And so that's not a surprise because we know that's true with cancers too, that uh, many people with cancers are very, very low in, in, in vitamin D. Uh, vitamin D is one of the few vitamins that uh, conventional medicine actually tests for these days because they know, you know, have the importance of it and in, in not just in relationship to bone and bone health because uh, it helps with calcium utilization, but it's also very important uh, in, in immunity, just like zinc. So, so those two things, <coughs> zinc and D3, uh, maybe in an ionophore of zinc, uh, like quercetin. If you wanted to go beyond that, you could certainly use vitamin C. Vitamin C is an antioxidant, and I think it's a very useful uh, broad-spectrum antioxidant. It's always been said it's good for colds, and I think this is true. Well, so, he just listed our entire protocol that we have at True Wellness. So we have three protocols to prevent COVID, if you have COVID actively, and if you've been vaccinated, the only thing that really changes isn't the remedies, it's just the dosage of the remedies, essentially. Yes, I so. would say so. I think that that's, that's a good way to think about it is that, you know, these are things that have been tried and true, and there's a lot of research. I mean, I'm writing an article about zinc right now that'll be in the BRMI uh, November newsletter. Awesome. And, and the importance of zinc. But uh, I'm astounded at the research behind zinc that's, that's out there. And particularly even in, in, uh, in its reference to, to COVID, uh, the, the SARS-CoV-2 and how important it is. So now there's also, you know, getting into pharmaceuticals, you know, you have ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. And these also seem to be ionophores of zinc, interestingly enough. So... Um, this may be one of the reasons why they work so well. Zinc inactivates the replication of the virus. So zinc inactivates the replication of the virus. It also plays into uh, many, many immunological enzymes. It's important for them to work. So um, I've been using Zincokeel from Santa. Okay. Because we can get that from Canada. Uh-huh. And well, you know, there's there's many kinds of zinc. You got zinc gluconates, zinc sulfates, zinc uh, picolinates, and I don't think it matters a whole lot. You know, as long as you're getting it in your body, and maybe you're trying to get an ionophore with it. If you could find quercetin out there, good luck. Uh, but if you could find it on the shelf or we have some at True Wellness, we've been stockpiling it for months. <laughs> along yeah, with you want to stockpile this stuff because it may not be around, just like food and water. Uh, may not, you know, these things may not be around for a long time. So uh, the shelves are getting uh, depleted, uh, but we're having more and more troubles here in my office in ordering these things. Well, we are too. 
we have to, and I know our client base that's looked to try to get ivermectin from the medical doctor community. That's become exceedingly more difficult and Mm -hmm. different. Um, Pharmacies won't even talk to you like Costco, Rite Aid, CVS. They won't even discuss ivermectin, Mm -hmm. uh, whereas some of the others will, but that you need a script and it's really become, you know, a push. But I would just want to say too, from our protocol perspective, we also added um, a macrophage uh, white blood cell enhancing topical ointment for the lymphatics to be placed over the nodes and a reboost nasal spray that has echinacea in it to just help overall boost immunity. And it has like ranoculus in it and different things like that, that are plant remedies that have been known to help when viral counts as a nasal spray or a throat spray and propolis, one of your favorite all-time products, Mm -hmm. um, propolis, which is a bee product, which just helps to protect and prevent. And so, you know, we're not saying it's all about freedom of choice. And like Dr. Odell said, please do your own research. And a great place to do that research is at brmi.online, which is an incredible resource that's nonprofit, no commercials. You'll never see a commercial there. That's just empirical based data um, that Dr. Odell is keenly uh, the founder of this organization and really um, works diligently to comb through the research with his board of advisors to make sure that all the data there is cutting edge and and again empirically based so that's a great place to research and you always use that other research it's what's the other thing that you always use for research i, I can never... well, I mean, there, there's several uh places you can go you could use a google scholar you can you know google online. scholar i can never remember it for the life yeah, of me. It, google there's, scholar. there's actually uh, numerous ones out there and uh unfortunately you know google is is heavily censored and uh so sometimes you have to go through back doors and uh to find information but if you do your due diligence you'll find the information it's there and it's still there and so um but i appreciate you talking about brmi and uh you know we do our best uh there in uh putting out information on, on diagnostics and therapies we also have a news section and uh, we try to keep things current and what's going on in the news. We and have a lot, a lot of videos on doctors talking about uh, COVID and talking about therapies for COVID and, and other types of important topics. Uh, so uh, yeah, please do go to brmi.online and, and, and check it out. Up, and sign up for the um, newsletter. The newsletter, which is absolutely so chuck full of content. I just don't know how he does it. I'm yeah. convinced yeah, he does Yeah, it's our e-journal. Is what I'm it convinced is. Dr. And Odell doesn't sleep. He just yeah, researched. It's a, it's... He just researched. That got, that got a little sped up there. But um, yeah. I, can I ask you one more question? Do you have enough time? Sure. To ask uh, sure. So we talked a lot about Pfizer and Moderna today because those are the gene therapies. So actually, it's two questions. One is there's been a lot of um, information in the last few weeks saying that Pfizer is in a is now been licensed by the FDA. But I believe that is a misunderstanding of the approval of which they got. Mm-hmm. Can you still hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Okay, fine, fine. Okay. Uh, well, yeah, actually, uh, they license Comirnaty. Okay. Uh, Comirnaty is a is a, a Pfizer product, and but it's not on the shelf yet. Okay. It's it's uh, being produced. It's in production, and um, it is a messenger RNA Pfizer product. Now they say it's almost the same thing as the current Pfizer product, but it's not exactly the same thing. It's not so. The current Pfizer product technically hasn't been licensed. It's still under emergency authorization use EAU use. All right. So, I, I know that for- sounds a little confusing. But um, so it, in some ways, it's, it's, a, it's a bit deceiving to, to say that, oh, the, the Pfizer vaccine has now been licensed. What they really need to specify is the Pfizer community vaccine has been licensed. Which isn't on the market yet. But isn't on the market yet. And uh, so they still have this other Pfizer vaccine out there that actually hasn't been licensed. Though yeah. the CDC says, well, it's almost the same thing and you could use it instead of, but technically uh, it's different and legally it's different, legally. 
so and, there's there's some there's some, some legal issues there that uh, have a lot to do with who who are you going to sue if something happens to you if it's under emergency authorization use you can't sue but if it's right. under if it's been licensed then you can go to vaccine court and sue so um, with this vaccine it's still under the, the one that's out there right now is still under EAU. It's not actually technically been licensed. Uh, it's the community. Even though, it, even though it's similar to community, which is in production, which has been licensed, but right. is yet not on the market. Okay, good, awesome. And the second question, thank you so much, Odell, Dr. Odell. And the second question is about the J&J. &J. That's more of a vaccine. We talked about that in episode 42, but I would still like people to consider the first three questions we asked, which is, is it necessary? Is it safe? And is it effective? Mm -hmm. And are we finding similar, uh, are there <laughs> any VAERS reports in regards to J&J &J that you've seen? Oh, absolutely. You know, the VAERS is, J&J uh, &J has uh, been uh, also a, uh, a problematic vaccine. Uh, particularly in, in clots and strokes and, and seizure activity and this kind of thing. It is injecting a spike protein, though it's not messenger RNA, it is a spike protein. Spike protein is the pathogen. It is the pathogen. And so you're injecting a pathogen into the body and that may not turn out well. So it's not a, um, a classical vaccine in the sense uh, it's a it's a little different than what has been uh, we took when we were children. Um, it's quite a bit different. So no, I don't think the J and J. Uh, you just again, you have to ask yourself: Is it um, really necessary? Is it safe? And is it effective? And and do your research on it and find out if is is that the one you want? Now they're saying, well, uh, the J and J, that kind of. Um, that leaves people, they don't know what to do because they've just had one or they're gonna need a booster and blah, blah, and it's, it's a mess. So uh, that I don't think is, is a, certainly for my choice of, of the vaccines, uh, some people say, well, it's the worst, it's the lesser of the evils. And I don't see it that way. I see that it also has its complications too. And what we really want to do today on this podcast is to educate you, help you self-inform, help you know what to research now that you've had a nice deep question about it. And at True Wellness, um, we are going to have a question and answer webinar available to you. The information is below so that in a week's time, two weeks time from this podcast, you'll be able to just in a group session, be able to ask your questions. Believe me, the questions that you have are not atypical. We've all had these questions. We're all researching as fast as possible because this is all new uncharted territory. All of it's, you know, we're all in one great science experiment called life. <laughs> Bottom line is, and the choices we make every day are helping our body either replicate and, and regenerate or degenerate. And that's what the tenets of bioregulatory medicine are all about and where you are on that biological division of homotoxicology, which if you don't know what that is, you really need to go to Dr. Odell's website, but you can, uh, to the BRMI website, it will absolutely educate you about that. But we really deeply appreciate your time, your research, your caring and and i'm going to give you the last words dr odell say what you want to say to the community and i pray that you all you know send this out to those that have questions continue to question and question 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 the only authority is you that means from self that's what the word authority means is from self the only authority you have to abide by is yourself because that's who you have to wake up every day and look at dr odell take it away well you know they they say that there's three ways that we acquire knowledge. And the first way is through our gut. And it's kind of like we have a, a dog sense about things. Is this right or is this wrong? And that I think that's important to keep your dog sense, to keep your, your kind of inner guidance system awake and alert. The second way is through doing our due diligence and doing research. That's also equally important in, in collecting information and, and finding out you know, what's important for you. Uh, and, and it helps to empower you. 
the third way is through authority. You know, we, we listen to the media, we listen to an authority figure and we say, okay, I'll do that. Um, but the first two ways are very important. And I just want you to um, consider them as your guiding principles in, in uh, following this through uh, in researching it for yourself. You have to feel it comfortable in your gut. If you don't, then there's something wrong. Secondly, you have to do your due diligence. Just don't go by authority. They just don't say, because the doctor said so, or, or the media said so, um, that's, that's a, a disaster uh, way to get information. But so I'm just to leave you with that idea. And I really appreciate being on your program, Kelly, and, and uh, I really wish everyone well, um, and be safe, be well. And I will- Get yes. on some zinc, y'all. No matter where you're at, where you are, zinc is the answer. Zinc, think zinc, yes. Think zinc. Thank you so much, Dr. Odell. You're, from, you're our heart, from our heart to yours, we will see you next time on The Beats. Okay, bye-bye. Hello, and thank you so much for joining us and spending your time here with us at The Beats with your host, Kelly Kennedy. And I know today more than ever before, you now know better how your body works. And at the very least, we hope we've helped you raise some questions and help you continue to investigate. We are here to help you naturally optimize a better version and vision of yourself on every single level. And after today, you can better engage your innate intelligence and allow for proper regulation and proper regeneration. Make sure to subscribe to never miss a beat again. We hope you've enjoyed this week's episode. And just a reminder that this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice or professional advice and care by your doctor or other qualified medical professionals. This podcast is created with the intention to provide information and education. This podcast is created with the understanding that it does not constitute professional advice or medical services. If you are looking for help in your journey and seek a qualified medical practitioner, or if you're looking for a biological, not meds practitioner, we can help you. Someone who's trained and a licensed health coach and someone that can help you make changes, especially when it comes to your health. That's what not meds mission is about. I hope you have enjoyed listening again to this podcast. It's one of my favorite things to do. And if you do, please feel free to share it with your friends, your colleagues, uh, for the tips of living the biological foundational life and living in the flow. And if you have been listening and love the show, please do leave comments. We love reading your comments. We really do. And you can subscribe to us wherever you hear your podcast. Thank you so much from our heart to yours. Mm -hmm.